0: T-minus 30 seconds. T-minus 20 seconds.
1: 15 seconds. 10, 9, 8,
0: 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 zero 12
1: miles no contact approaching 5 miles
0: contact 70 miles 3230
2: Contact 6000, speed
1: 350,
2: uh, 340. And you're ready to
1: mount 118. Heads up, it's uh, 30
2: left, shallow. 17. One off, that's two contacts, 166 and six, 11, Angel 5. Welcome to Episode 3 of the OSIRIS Project. Today we are joined by Father Christopher Corribly from the Vatican Observatory. We will discuss why the Vatican has an observatory after an apparent shunning of science, as well as what they are researching and how their discoveries may affect doctrine. Join us now for Episode 3, The Vatican Observatory. All right, folks, welcome back to Episode 3. This is a very special episode. We have, as I said, both uh, Father Corbley and Professor Matthew Shadagas. Uh, Father Corbley is a Jesuit priest on the research staff of the Vatican Observatory and an adjunct professor at the University of Arizona. He principally uses spectroscopy to investigate the evolution of stars, and he's a co-author for the comprehensive volume Stellar Spectral Classification. He was the project scientist for the Vatican Advanced Technology Telescope on Mount Graham, Arizona, as well. And a longtime interest in interdisciplinary questions has led to his co-authorship with Dr. Margaret Boone Rappaport of the recent book, The Emergence of Religion in Human Evolution. So without further ado, let's bring in Father Christopher Corbley of the Vatican Observatory and Professor Professor Matthew Shadagas of UAPX. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you for being here
1: to be with you jeremy and matthew too
2: and yes nice to meet you father yes Corble. so matthew this is father christopher corbley christopher nice. this is matthew Shadagas. matthew is our one of our physicists on staff at uh, at uapx pleasure so. to meet
0: you father i'm uh the only practicing catholic or probably the only religious person on my department of physics everyone else Hello. is an atheist
1: <laughs> yeah well, neat, but I think it's a myth, as uh, someone whom you have met, uh, Brother Guy Consalvo, that yes. uh, yeah, you know, that uh, physicists are low in uh, believers. No, I, I don't think so.
0: Well, in my department, it's true, unfortunately. Yeah, but
1: you should come here to uh, the Department of Astronomy in uh, Arizona. Yeah.
2: You know, it it, it is interesting. I, uh, I, I this wasn't the direction I was going to take initially uh, with with this interview, but I was watching a uh, uh, a little snippet from an interview that that had you and a few other folks on uh, Father that was done by the BBC, and I can't remember the gentleman's name, Lawrence Krauss. Uh, Krauss, mm-hmm. and he he was he made a statement that kind of. <laughs> I, I can see how it would be offensive to some that he said that the best scientists are atheists. And that, that struck me as very odd because I I never even, well, I, I wouldn't consider it, but h- how is that specific statement received within the scientific community of the church?
1: It's uh, ignored. Fair enough. And, uh, quite honestly. And do you see from that, I think it was called a pop-up or something program on the BBC, five minutes or so.
2: And yeah, it was a very it, small clip.
1: Small clip, and you could kind of see it from there. Actually, uh, Lawrence Krauss was extremely well answered by the director of the uh, Department of Astronomy. Uh, we're here in uh, the University of Arizona in Tucson, um, and uh, the director of the bar- department, uh, Bjul Juzzi, I think answered uh, Krauss extremely well. said, no.
2: That's nonsense yes I, I believe he did as well and and in full disclosure uh, I was I was raised Roman Catholic um, hmm. and I think I'm I'm certainly not an atheist in any way shape or form. Um, I would probably classify myself more as an agnostic because I do believe something is there but I'm not yet convinced on what that something is and I don't even know if I would, possess the ability to understand what it is, even with the the ability of being presented with all the, the, the facts and evidence.
1: Jeremy, join every believer who's honest. <laughs>
2: I, and certainly
1: join every theologian who's honest about their God talk. We we can't put it in words.
0: I mean, even Richard Dawkins says on a level of zero to seven, he's a level six atheist because he says it's on it's it's not scientific to claim, you know, something with 100 percent certainty.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. fair. That's totally fair. Yeah. So. So, uh, Father Corbley, before we get into the the why, what, when and how, let's let's talk a little bit about where where we are now with this conversation in, in atheism and science and religion how does one who has a very, very strong belief in a specific doctrine or dogma, how does one ensure that that belief structure, that personal belief structure does not uh, affect in a bias towards the the output of, of scientific research? I, I understand that if it's mathematics, that is a finite calculation and very difficult to to, to skew one way or the other, but if it's research and interpretation, how does somebody with a strong belief ensure that there is a separation between the hard science and what the researcher may want the output to become? You,
1: oh, well, yes, so this is different from kind of faith uh, affecting science, uh, I suppose, i think is isn't that right it, it, you're not asking the question of faith affecting science is that right
2: not necessarily faith affecting science no. but how does one's how do you keep your your personal faith from affecting your bias in in the oh. writing of the results
1: because uh, you know the questions are different the ultimate question you know one of faith uh, and of god it is different from the questions of science, which is, how does it work? And how does it work? The answer is not God. You know, why is it there anyway? The answer is God. But how does it work? That's the question of, of physics of and of the sciences, chemistry, biology, or the rest of them. So it's a different question, and that's why they, you know, the one doesn't affect the other. They, you know, faith can enjoy the finding out of how it works, and in some ways find that maybe one has a share in God's delight, the Creator's delight in creation, by finding out how it works. But it's it's not the
2: question of there at all. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Matthew?
0: Yeah, if I could add to that, I I do think I might have um, a bias, even if it's subconscious, but it's not going to be what you think. Um, Mm -hmm. And I would love, of course, Father uh, to to weigh in on what I'm about to say as well, but I feel like I do have, I might have a subconscious bias towards the universe being understandable. So Albert Einstein once said – well, many quotes are attributed to Einstein. I don't know if this is apocryphal, but he says the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. So the only way I could see my beliefs or religiosity in any way influencing my approach is just in this one way, which is that I am biased to think that the universe is logical and comprehensible for the reason that – I, because of my belief in God and that I believe God created a universe that's rational and can be understood by humans. In other words, you don't wake up tomorrow and general relativity doesn't work anymore. Gravity doesn't work and we fly off the earth or um, you know, thermodynamics, the laws of entropy change and suddenly you die of suffocation. We could have lived in a universe like that but we don't. And to me, so the way it motivates, the way religion motivates me, it is still primarily separate, like Father Corby said, but the one exception I could think of is I'm motivated to think the universe is rational and understandable. And part of it is because, you know, it says in, 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 um, in, in scripture that God is not evil and there is no evil in him. So that's why I think he didn't trick us and that things like, you know, age of the universe, fossils, and things like that are there for us to discover and for human beings to understand.
1: Oh, but, Matthew, may I play the devil's advocate? Of course. You know, appropriate of course. role, of course. Yeah. Doesn't the atheist, agnostic, have the same belief in the rationality, a discovery of the rationality uh, of material things around us?
0: Um, not necessarily, um, not always, not every atheist I know, but you're right. I would say that to me, then the source of that rationality is different because the way I look at it is as a scientist, either the laws of physics are eternal and the universe could have come from nothing, or there's an eternal creator that made said laws. Um and so the way I look at it is the source of the rationality is different.
1: But you make yeah. an excellent yeah. point. No, that's a uh, wonderful so the source, I suppose the source of an atheist's rationality is the fact it's worked so far.
0: Yeah. See, <laughs> but then the difference for me is I have faith it will continue to work. I can't prove it, but I have faith well, that the rationality will go. Right. The universe will continue. Yeah. <laughs> and see
2: for me, I just don't know. I, I simply fair. just yeah. don't know. Um, I, I I find it very very difficult to comprehend how everything could be eternal, and I also find it very hard to comprehend how everything isn't eternal at the exact same time. So I I I literally have have zero. Understanding as, as as far as I, I think I know what I want to believe, but in and, and politics aside, Rudy Giuliani had a quote that has stuck with me for a very long time, and he says, know what you believe,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and I am on a personal quest to try to know what I believe, but I don't want my beliefs to affect the way that I'm trying to, to find answers to things yep, to bias it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, so this is, is fantastic and I, I appreciate this conversation, but I think my, one of my biggest burning questions and I need to preface this by saying that my questions are not designed to be insultative or any, other type of, of interrogatory type of uh, approach. I, I am, I am asking questions from an outside perspective based on what I see happening or what I have seen happening through my eyes and through my understanding. And that may well be flawed, but it is, it is what is in my head and probably many others that are very curious. And, and we have the assumption And it may be a a wrong assumption, but we have the assumption that throughout history, long time ago, that it seems as if the Catholic Church or churches in general, for that matter, have had a very tenuous relationship with science and education in general. And you know what I said in in the uh, the preview for the or the the trailer for the uh, the show is that it seemed as if there was a shunning of science to an effect I mean, Galileo, for example. So why is the Catholic Church operating an observatory? Let's let's just jump right well, into that.
1: Well, uh, back a bit, Jeremy. In your question: the, the Church and uh, you know, kind of science and certainly knowledge and understanding certainly uh, quite a valid claim can be made that the reason that the why uh, knowledge you know kept going through the middle ages and even the dark ages was in monasteries so it was the the learning uh, you know of monks and church people that kept the the knowledge going so I think uh, it you wouldn't know, you say that the church is you know, against intellectual knowledge. It's a question of this newfangled thing, science, you know, and that was sort of based on experimentation rather than philosophy. This is something that we are incredibly used to, you know, science and what is science. Putting oneself back in the sort of, you know, late medieval medieval ages, the beginning of the modern ages, is a difficult one for us because we don't have that sort of historical viewpoint. So the transition from your mind, your philosophy, you know, tells you what's going on, the kind of the, you know, from the Greeks, maybe Plato, you know, what's called idealism, that, you know, knowledge is from, you know, our mind and the ideals to, well, maybe more Aristotle, that no, it's out there in nature and it's being able to then how do we interact with nature in order to find out? Not just the phenomenon, what happens, but why it happens. So what's what's behind it? That's a great transition. And it is obviously in Galileo's days that the experimentation was, you know, coming to the fore. So Galileo is actually a better, um, you know, promoter of you know, the physics, you know, the dynamics, the, the moving bodies, than he was actually of, uh, you know, astronomy. Sure. He, uh, what, what is known as his proofs of the sun being the center of our solar system, not the earth, were not actually proofs. There were wonderful, you know, insight and, as it were, guesses, but there wasn't any physical proof uh, for that. That didn't come till what is it? Two hundred years later. Um, So when our measurements could be precise enough to show that yes, it was the Earth that was moving around the Sun, not the Sun round the Earth, but that took a long time for the precision to come. It was a great. You know, insight, but it, it it actually wasn't you know good science. And people at that time knew there was a flaw in, as it were, the experimental science of Galileo. His you know falling bodies, his motion, gravity. You know those were wonderful, and uh, at least he spent a little time locked up in his own house and <laughs> able to to finish that important aspect of his work. Um, but so you see what I mean it's a transition that we find very hard to understand, and so we'll have, need to be very careful about condemning the people of the time for not being able to make that transition as readily as we can.
2: So it's not necessarily the 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 doctrine or dogma of the church that would would lash out at new ideas or new guesses as you were saying, but it was more. The mentality of the people that were that were speaking of the time?
1: I think so. Uh, Before that upstart Galileo came on the scene and thought he knew all about our solar system. So we're actually going back into uh, the 16th century and more precisely 1582. The Catholic Church promulgated the calendar system that we are now using at the time so it used observational astronomy to give us our current calendar, what they were then operating on, what was it, over 400 years ago, uh, nearly 450 years ago, was a calendar inherited from Julius Caesar, which, again, for the time was incredibly good, but it didn't quite have the length of our year correct. And, and so what was happening is that the seasons, spring, summer, autumn, winter, were getting out of step with the calendar date. And for the Catholic Church, that was a problem because what was happening, the date of Easter in the Northern Hemisphere, was shifting back into winter time, whereas it is an Easter feast, a feast of new life in Christ, the resurrected Christ. Um, so that was a problem for the church, and that's why the church brought in mathematicians and scientists, among whom was one Jesuit, to advise on how to uh, reform the calendar. It was Pope Gregory XIII, as they say, 1582, who promulgated the, the calendar that we're using at the moment, the Gregorian calendar. So, in a sense, you know, science was there, but it was a time of transition. It was only obviously the beginning of the um, 1600s that uh, you know, Galileo came on the scene with his great um, insight of what might be, you know, how, how our solar system was made
2: up. Interesting. So, Jeremy, so, yes, go ahead, Matthew.
0: Jeremy, I'd like to add about the, you know, uh, uh, Father Corbley mentioned about guesses. So, You have to keep in mind, yeah, with Galileo's original uh, – I've learned a lot about the Galileo story from Brother Guy, actually. He came and gave a (laughs) seminar, a public seminar about Galileo and talked about the facts. And there's been like hundreds of books written on the subject. And what what one has to acknowledge is that um, you can't – the heliocentric model, as originally stated, actually – doesn't work better than the Ptolemaic model. Because if you assume planets orbits are circles, your answers are nowhere near as good as Ptolemy with his epicycles. It doesn't fit the data. It's not until you get Kepler and we let go of this, like, Oh, it has to be circle has to be perfect. Mm. And we get elliptical orbits. Bam. Suddenly now the heliocentric model actually is better than the geocentric. So are you
2: saying it's fair to, Maybe not fair, but it was more acceptable to question harder Galileo because his imperfect guesses still weren't correct.
0: That, that's right. So there's no excuse, and Pope John Paul II already apologized about the whole Galileo thing. I know it was a few centuries late, but but still, you know, Pope John Paul II, one of my personal heroes. But the thing is, is that it still doesn't excuse everything that happened. Brother Guy says this, but you have to understand the his scientific context hmm. and also the historical context. You had the Protestant Reformation, and the church needed to look hard and look like it was ultra-conservative, and so it had to come down hard on Galileo. So that doesn't excuse it, but this is what I learned from Brother Guy is that you need to look at that context. And also you have to you can't look at the the church history as Father Corbley was saying. Look, it's it's not some linear thing. Where it's like, oh, it was anti-science for this time, and then bam, suddenly it changed in the 20th century. There's ebb and flow of historical and cultural differences. For example, when I give my talk on faith in science, I trick a lot of people. I take a quote from St. Augustine. I actually take an entire paragraph from St. Augustine where he talks about evolution and animals, land animals coming from fish. And I'm like, who said this? Was it Richard Dawkins, Charles Darwin? And the entire audience gets it wrong. It's St. Augustine. And you should see the jaws drop in the audience. I'm like, yeah, St. Augustine was talking about evolution millennia before Darwin. Okay, so then, and and St. Augustine, of course, one of the heroes of Catholicism, of Christianity in general. So I don't think history is not a linear process of constantly changing in one direction so one cannot say a binary statement oh the church was against learning or science and then suddenly it wasn't when i just gave you this a great example from st augustine who i should also add i quoted i quoted this in my talk he also has a paragraph making fun of people who take Genesis literally, he says, Oh, of course it's not seven actual days. Only an idiot would believe that. He says that. Okay. This is St. Augustine. Okay. St. Augustine in he was the three hundreds, I believe. Okay. It took three digits to say the year, right? This was long before the year 1000 St. Augustine was writing this millennia ago. Keep. So do you think it would be fair to say that
2: the church in general has has less of a, uh, a persecution problem and more of a public relations problem, because the message doesn't come to me.
0: I think I'll yeah. let Father Corby take that
2: one. <laughs> well, I think that's true. And you're also, you know,
1: true that there was, you know, a great sluggishness to, to transition from, um, you know, the The static, the Aristotelian um, view of things, you know, and the earth as the center. And there was, you know, and the, you know, literal interpretation of the Bible. Again, what Matthew was saying about uh, that, Augustine was criticizing. There was, uh, you know, that transition took a time within the church, and there were church people who were, you know, kind of stuck in the past, as it was, well as ones that were heading, you know, for current modern science. So, uh, among, you know, the Jesuits in the seventeenth um, century, so the sixteen hundreds, the ones who who certainly, you know, kind of realized that Galileo had the right picture of our solar system and the universe as a whole, uh, but weren't allowed to teach it, but they certainly thought it was correct. But then you come into um, a question of personalities and the fact that Galileo was the kind of person, and we all know that kind of person, who simply has to win an argument. And uh, doesn't endear... Himself to to everyone in, in that way. So there was obviously some opposition, some opposition between the Jesuits and Galileo, and it was just a, a personality thing. But as far as the, you know, the what they thought and then what they taught w- was different. So what maybe what they'd say, you know, this is for the exam, but this is what I think, kind of thing in class. Maybe no. so one goes it goes on a little today.
2: So this is absolutely fantastic, and it it reinforces my question that I'm that I'm asking is why does the Vatican operate an observatory? Um, and and I had, in all honesty, I had a preconceived idea for for my answer, but now that is mostly erased. So I would love to hear the official reasons for why the Vatican operates uh, not not one, but I believe two observatories: one in, in Vatican City and mm-hmm. and one here. Not quite, no. It's one observatory, two locations. Okay. You know, okay. the universe
1: is big, so why not have uh, lots of locations, but, uh, you know, multiverses or multi locations for the one observatory, the Vatican Observatory. We have headquarters near Rome, as you'd expect, Castle Gandolfo now, but it started in the city of, you know, the city of the Vatican. Mm-hmm. Um and then since the you know early 1980s, we have had this research base, so also part of the observatory, but a research base hosted by the University of Arizona in Tucson. So uh, that's the kind of thing. Um, but your original question, why? Well, one, there's a tradition there. You know, and the church is good on tradition, and the tradition does go back to what I was speaking about, the reform of the calendar under Pope Gregory the Thirteenth. Gregorian calendar now, and so um, you know the church in astronomy. uh, The astronomy was one of the subjects taught at medieval universities. Astronomy, just kind of what kind of astronomy? There we go. But it was there, so it's there. And these were church-run, you know, universities. So these, uh, for main part. Uh, or religion run universities, um, and uh, so astronomy was there. It's part of the, the curriculum. So, in the uh, you know the Vatican's university in Rome, which is now the Gregorian University, but it was called the Roman College for a long time, astronomy was part of the curriculum, and there would arise. Um, one of the faculty members of the Jesuit who would ha- get a real enthusiasm for observational astronomy and establish a little observatory. And, you know, like any enthusiasm, it would kind of wane when the person passed on and then it would resurrect again uh, as things, uh, you know, at, with a later person. So it's kind of that up and down uh you know, active uh, participation in uh, you know observational astronomy research at the Church's University uh, in Rome, the the Roman College initially. Uh, Interesting. So, so, so in it, it's that kind of thing—a a, graduate, a presence, and a definite presence of astronomy, but coming and going as the enthusiasm of a particular person came and went.
2: So, is the observatory structured more for? practical applications for teaching and informing students or is it is it a and and forgive my terminology but it, it's it's for lack of a better word a legitimate research institution
1: yeah it's a research institution um just to go on a little bit in the, the story of the roman college just to show that in the middle of the 19th century so the actually 1850 precisely a Jesuit was appointed um, director of the observatory of the Roman College. His name was Father Angelo Secchi, and he was an incredible pioneer in what is now modern astronomy. Before then, it had been positions, more astrometry, the measuring of positions and brightness of objects in the heavens. With uh, Angelo Secchi and his like, Became uh, astronomy became physics. It became astrophysics. The understanding of why what are stars, what are planets made of. Uh, Angelo Secchi had the wonderful, you know, uh, thought experiment: What would it be like to stand on Mars? And we're still wondering ourselves. But obviously, with our probes getting a better idea, so what is Mars really like? You know. Mm rather than where is it in the sky. So this transition. So Angelo Secchi, a prominent member of the uh, Roman college, when, as you know, towards his later years, that uh, Rome came, uh, as it were, conquered by the uh, Italian. And so the observatory fell into the Italian government hands and the Vatican no longer had an observatory. A little bit later, in 1891, Pope Leo, now the 13th, reestablished the Vatican Observatory, basically in its current form, first in Vatican City in the 1930s. is able to establish outside of Rome and away from Rome, lights at Castle Gandolfo, outside of Rome. And then, as I say, in 19 early 1980s, again, because of the light pollution around Castle Gandolfo, we have our research base here in Arizona. So a kind of continuous um, you know, line from when Leo re-established it late 19th century to, to current day observatory, established for research back to your original question yeah. so it's research though obviously you, you know Jesuits tend to be teachers teachers will be part of've taught here at the University of Arizona there's one of our um, staff member actually the vice director here now father Paul Gabor teaching a, a class here at the a course here at the University of Arizona so yeah um
2: so where does the research uh, um Hierarchy of needs, I guess you would call it, come from who? Who dictates what is going to be studied and and for how long and 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 things like that? It, 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 well, I'll just I'll let you answer that part. Who who tells the observatory what needs to be studied? No one. Okay.
1: Okay. So it's, so it's in the-, the the old idea of the observatory was you had the director and it was very hierarchical just like the church the director had a project and everyone else the staff did that project wonderful yeah. and the director's name was the first on any papers that came out and that is how it happened <laughs> that's you know the old idea current idea is that people have their various um, you know backgrounds training expertises within astronomy they have a network of colleagues you know, beyond our observatory. And so they they do what best suits them, you know, uh, them and their colleagues are best suited for and interested in. So there's a whole variety of projects. These you get the blessing of the director, (laughs) you know, uh, which has to be, you know, that this is a good project. Yes, I believe, yes, you should pursue that. why not think a bit about doing more work on this line? You know, with these set of colleagues you have. You know, so you know the director can still, you know, make those uh, you know directions a suggestion for movement. But really, it's the person who comes in with a certain set, uh, certain training in, in a branch of astronomy and a network of colleagues.
2: Is is the observatory fully funded by the the Catholic Church?
1: Um. Yes and no, being a good answer. You know, our day-to-day operations and our travel and conferences are fully funded by the Vatican. Our telescope here in Arizona is not, and that's funded through, uh, you know, private donations and foundations. So that's the difference. And, yes, we're always looking for funds to to do that and to make upgrades and all, all the
2: rest of it well before the end of the show let's let's talk about that and let you you tell me where we can send people that are interested in donating to the observatory to uh to keep it running so please remind me and we'll we'll get that right at the end and i'll put it in the uh, the links in the descriptions uh when this uh when this so, goes thank, out on youtube thanks yeah, because we do
0: rely on i don't i donated a bit and i got a calendar
1: oh you did yes
0: i remember what, yeah.
2: was it a gregorian calendar
0: <laughs> no, but the calendar example is a really good one. Actually, that before we got too far away from that, I wanted to, to, to jump in about how the um the church was utilizing science. Okay, then and and how critical it was, even though it was in the context, as Father Corbley said, of the setting the correct date of the holidays like Easter. Hmm. But also, I wanted to come back to the point of of um of ast- a- astronomy versus um versus just you know astrometrics exactly so one thing i always teach my students when i teach astronomy is how you had the um uh, divorce occurred between astronomy and astrology and it started with kepler and proceeded uh forward um the, the coming centuries and it was because we had newton's laws of motion and kepler's laws of motion that uh, there was no longer a mystery why the planet stars did what they did. There was completely, it wasn't just, oh, we've been studying for thousands of years and going back to the Babylon. So we know eclipse will happen at this time. But now there was understanding. F equals GMM over R squared. You have Newton's law, you have Kepler's laws. And and I wanted to point out, because I think this can help also, given the theme earlier about, you know, religion and science and a perception of, of conflict. I'm not sure if you know this, Jeremy, but you realize that the, catholic church and also many forms existing and forms of christianity you know have been vehemently um against astrology and the original logic was like oh it's evil from from the from the devil but now as a catholic the way i was taught is oh the reason why in the old testament says astrology is evil is because it's crap and it doesn't work. It's this nonsense. But of course, the fundamentals Christian would still say, Oh, because it's evil and from the devil. But I was Jesuit educated, you should know. I went to a Jesuit high school. Oh, um, totally i throw that in there. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, but but I the way I was taught as, as a Catholic is like we don't do astrology because it's crap and it doesn't work. And that's why God said, don't do it. Not because it's evil, but God was trying to encourage people, even ancient times, um, don't waste your time on things that don't work. And, but there's this interesting separation, not just between astrometrics and astronomy, but then there was this historical divorce also between astronomy and astrology in science when it already was there for centuries in the church cuz the church was like mm, you know bible says no to horoscopes and astrology and then so they were first on that front the church was first and then science caught up and it's like yeah astrology is yeah they caught up later the church was actually ahead of its time on 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 that on that on that front the reason why i thought of it is cuz father corby mentioned astrometrics and it reminded me also other astro blank you know insert a different suffix also underwent separation over history
2: so what happens when when the when the observatory is not fully funded the telescope itself is not fully funded by the vatican in tucson um and you're looking for donations it are i I don't want to get into a lot of of fringe conversations but here at uapx we become very beholden to the people who give us money and we're, we're bound by their directionality, their caveats and their covenants in exchange for the funding. Mm -hmm. Does, does the church have override authority on that or is the telescope itself and the operation of the telescope also beholden to the wishes of the donors?
1: Short answer. Yes, it is. So, um, in we are in corp, you know a, a tax exempt corporation uh in incorporated in the state of arizona so yes we have to follow uh, the practice of such uh, organizations and yes we follow donor wishes
2: what what happens when there is a conflict between donors wishes or is there conflict between donors wishes and the church
1: well you you don't accept the donation, and uh, the, the occasional certainly you know Jesuits who are principals of colleges have had to make that kind of decision. A donor wanting this, that, and the other, and they, the principal feeling no, that's not appropriate. So um, thank you so much, but no, thank you.
2: If if you're comfortable in, in answering the question, what would be A conflict for research between a donor and the church. What what would the church say no to? With
1: our telescope, um, it would say no to say a a specific military use. Okay. Now, having said that, uh, I have great friends actually who are among the first users of our you know telescope here in Arizona, uh, who. were in a college just nearby at the foot of the mountain and they would bring students up and there were wonderful users there. But then they moved to New Mexico and um, the university there and got funding for a telescope. Actually, the, the mirror is the same size as what the mirror in the Hubble telescope. So it's a good-sized mirror. And in order to aid their funding, part of it is funding by the, the military. And so that's fine. It's it's not a it's not a church telescope. That was the way they could get a telescope. And it's do, you know it's good doing good um, work. You know, I, I won't say exactly what it's doing, but uh, you know, uh, I, they don't know exactly what it's doing either. But you know, that seems to be fine. Uh, the also, I suppose, in the University of Arizona um, has been working with mirror. Military on a common project to try and get around the fuzziness, the defocusing that the atmosphere makes for images of stars and galaxies. So, uh, you know, the image has to come down through the atmosphere, and there's turbulence, there's little thermal turbulence. In, and so it defocuses the image the sharp image of say a star and the star ends up as a little blob rather than a single point in a telescope now with a technique called adaptive optics you can make that star come back to a, a point of light or the galaxy in all its glory now think of it the other way so the military can look upwards and find out exactly what the satellites are looking like. So it's the same problem of, you know, stabilizing the, artificially stabilizing the atmosphere in order to get precise images. So it works both ways. And we've had University of Arizona people, you know, working with military. So there's overlap there. It's not to say that the church is against military, but doesn't want to directly work with them. It just is not appropriate.
2: Sure, and and completely understandable. Um, has there ever been any discovery that the Vatican Observatory has made that I, I guess, for lack of a better terminology, was was like a rock being thrown in a pond? It created waves, and it 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 made the church kind of take a step back and and look at doctrine and say, were we wrong, or or has any discovery? Embolden the doctrine more so than 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 not with with proof.
1: Yeah, this would be in astronomy in general. Uh, the Vatican Observatory itself has not made you know shattering discoveries, we've participated in various things, but not of itself. But I I don't always expect you know uh, science to bring challenges. Yes. Uh, I'd say that, uh, you know, genetics has has brought challenges uh, and that understanding, but it's always, um, you know, opening up one's eyes. You know, initially you say, gosh, what, and then incorporating. Let me do a little kind of almost personal plug. So you you mentioned that I've, you know, co-authored a book uh, on the emergence of religion in human evolution. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is actually it's not so much theology you know religion as science answering how do we come to have a capacity for religion so rather than looking at the religion itself how do we you know we humans how do we have that capacity and the answer is through you know wondrous you know means of science and a lot of genetics is there actually particular genes that make us you know, capable of kind of I- imagining the not purely physical, the beyond, the be able to you know think think beyond the the purely what's right in front of us, and the whole imagine way of imagining and contemplating. Um, so this is, this is a matter of science. So initially, one say, oh, genetics, no, that must be terrible. It's, it challenges, you know, God's action. Actually, no, it, uh, it's fascinating to find how God can work through the, you know, the, pro- the progress of nature, the path of nature and evolution to, to make us who are capable of incredible things, including a capacity for religion.
2: Interesting.
0: Interesting, Jeremy. I've been waiting for you to ask that question because I knew you were. Going, <laughs> I knew you were going to, and I think one critical thing to be aware of is that a a religion and a doctrine can be very robust if it avoids what is what what is known as the God of the gaps. Guy Consolmiano. Guy, Guy mentions this in his, many of his books, and I talked about it. Basically, if you say God is responsible for lightning, and now I understand how lightning works – then you've got a problem. But if you are, I know the, the counter-argument, the devil's advocate counter-argument to what I'm about to say is, oh, well, if you make your religion vague enough, anything works. But I'm being sincere, of course, that as long as it's, you know, you say God created the universe, but you do not say how, then you avoid the kind of situation you're talking about, Jeremy. There are still things you've got, like evolution, genetics, yeah. as Father Corbly was saying. But you ask the question about, Two ways. You said, "What about discoveries that shore things up?"
2: Hmm. And
0: I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the 1950s, Pope Pius the the 12th um, said that he. It was not a doctrinal proclamation. Be very careful. He didn't say this ex cathedra, <laughs> but basically, he said that the big bang theory was awesome. And he gave it two thumbs up. I don't know if you're aware of this, but the Big Bang Theory was created by a Catholic priest, actually, a Belgian by the name of Father Georges-Henri Lemaitre. I probably butchered his name because I don't speak French, but um, my wife does. It's got the funny eye with the carrot triangle on it. But basically, a, a Catholic priest invented the Big Bang Theory. I'm going to let that sink in for a moment in case you didn't know that. And I, I, yeah, I, I had
2: no idea. You had no idea. You know why? Because, yeah,
0: the media is not going to tell you that because it doesn't play into the narrative hmm. of religion and science being enemies. It doesn't play into that narrative. Well, this, so this say, it's, it's my... a historical fact that gets buried, you're not going to find it in many textbooks. And, and Albert Einstein gets credit when you're, you're going to love this. Albert Einstein despised... the the big bang theory, because he, despite everyone thinking he believed in God, I think the evidence is really, he was more agnostic. He thought the big bang theory was a disaster. It was terrible because he believed the universe was eternal and he fudged his equations to make sure it was the universe was eternal because if the universe is eternal, you don't need God.
2: Well, see, that's what goes back to my, my idea that it's very difficult for a person to separate their personal beliefs from the bias of the report and 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 if einstein is fudging uh uh, mathematical equations yeah if he's fudging equations based on his belief then i'm i'm kind of full circle again back to whom whom do i trust to to have the the unadulterated pure truth of that, a doesn't discovery.
0: E- that doesn't exist. We're not Vulcans. We're not all command, uh, Commander Spock and his compatriots. All all science and religion, every human endeavor has bias. So the, we can never eliminate bias. What we do is we mitigate it through things like blind peer review of our scientific publications. But on the Big Bang Theory, I also have to add that because you're asking shoring discoveries that shore up religious mm-hmm. doctrine because mm-hmm. s- s- this The Big Bang Theory was the first time, to my knowledge, and Father Corbley can correct me if I'm mistaken, that the church's doctrine of creation ex nihilo from nothing actually had scientific evidence. Every other culture's creation myth is that there was some primordial soup. Or whatever that that you know the God or gods reformed order into chaos, and even in the Old Testament of the Bible it says um, the spirit of God flew over the waters. What waters? He hadn't created them yet, and 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 and. But the Catholic doctrine was that God created the universe ex nihilo, from nothing. And the dis- d- destruction of what was called the steady state theory, which was the big counter to Big Bang with the discovery of the cosmic microwave background in the 1960s, really sort of killed off the idea that the universe had no beginning. We now know the universe's age to like five decimal places. I mean, it's crazy. Like, well, this universe anyway. This universe, anyway, yes. We know the precision. We when I was a child, we argued about whether the universe was five or twenty billion years old. Now we know it's 13.799. It's it's absolutely incredible. And but it's amazes me though, how the strange dichotomies we have in the country and in the world that originally the Big Bang Theory was decried as, oh, that's that's religious. That's that's awful. That sounds like religion. We can't have this. And many astronomers like Fred Hoyle, not just Albert Einstein, said, they poo-pooed it and said, oh, we can't have this. This sounds like religion. And now in modern day, you have in America people saying, what? The universe is only 6,000 years old. Every Big Bang Theory is great. It's like, we've come full circle. Right. You know, yesterday's, yesterday's controversy becomes today's dogma Yesterday's dogma became today's controversy, you just come full circle.
1: Fascinating, good, Matthew. You, you expressed that well. I'd also throw a little uh, you know, bomb in there. And yet, St. Augustine, whom you very rightly uh, quoted earlier, had could um, cope with a universe that didn't have any beginning. I don't uh, I need to go back into the passage and understand it more myself. But that's my strong understanding of someone who is with us and sadly died prematurely, Father Bill Steger, a uh, cosmologist, and he'd point out Augustine you know, could cope with the universe without a beginning.
0: Yes. No, but that was my point earlier about the God of the gaps. So uh, even even if the Big Bang Theory was disproven, or it turns out the universe didn't have a beginning we can still cope with that i i agree i totally agree i have to go look up that passage again yeah
2: so religious scientific principles or scientific religious principles whichever way you have it do you feel that there is almost a caste or a class system to that where the the upper echelons of the church have a more flexible ideology or or dogma to them and then as you proceed further down to the ground level you have more fundamentalists and evangelicals who are much more literal and potentially public relation wise damaging to the overall view of the church I, there's security
1: in literalism
2: there's also ignorance and or bliss and ignorance yes Exactly, but you know,
1: and the problem with uh, you know, the more understanding is it opens up the questions, as uh, Matthew and I know, and you too, Jeremy, in science. Uh, the more you delve into something, the more questions you have, in the sense, the more uncertainty you have. You know, at, at heart of things, we've not got to the fundamentals of uh, you know, fundamental physics yet. Um, And uh, I had a a wonderful enthusiast a couple of days ago uh, talking about the, you know, how magnetic resonance was going to, you know, transform our whole understanding. Well, yeah, you know, we've had theories of everything and the answer is 42. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The reference there. But without denigrating the the power of magnetic resonance, um, you know, to find... The, the whole answer is always happily. It's beyond science, you know. So, you know, today's science, tomorrow's science, the next day's science. That's the nature of things. Always to be asking. So a scientist can't, you know, can't be a fundamentalist, because there's always questions to ask. It's essentially a shifting territory. The things, yes, we can establish. Um, In Matthew, to quote your hero brother Guy, you know he'll he'll hold up a you know a science textbook uh, and the Bible uh, and say, "Look, the Bible's not going to change. This textbook is out of the window in ten years, even less. We have to write it again."
0: Yeah, there's a certain there's a comfort in certainty. I actually have. a couple concrete examples of what you just stated, Jeremy. I learned i did I didn't learn very much history of science, it, but I did at least get a liberal arts education, a good Jesuit education, but one great example of what you're talking about, okay? Great example about hierarchy and differences. In the Middle Ages, any learned individual knew it was obvious. The earth was spherical. That we already knew the size of the earth with a two percent error sure. going back to the ancient Greeks, okay? But ask Joe Sixpack in medieval mm. Europe, you, they're gonna say the earth is flat. Of course they were right? Yeah. So, like that's a great example. A modern example of that is I personally know people and it pains me deep inside, but I know tons of people. Unfortunately, it's tons. Unfortunately, it's not a small number who, including Catholics, my fellow, fellow members of my religion who are like, you know, the Pope says, you know, um, COVID is serious. Get a vaccine. And I know people are like, oh, vaccines. I'm not getting that. Oh, the Pope said so. Ah, Pope's a communist. I don't have to listen to him. These are Catholics saying this to me. And it pains me deep inside to hear that, it really does. Um, And it does, as you said, it does, um, if people like that are outspoken, like on social media and stuff, it does massive damage. It does do do some damage to, um, to 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 the church, and it really it really hurts when that it hurts me when that happens. But I see it even today. But you have to distinguish one thing, Jeremy, is that you know religion is not a monolithic thing, There's Catholicism, but there's a bajillion flavors of Christianity. So so there are differing degrees of what you would term fundamentalism, and in my experience, Catholicism is still very low on that scale. Recent two years, it seems like there's been an increase, at least locally, where I've been in American Catholics on that spectrum. But I think that to Catholicism's credit, mm. I think we have at least recently been pretty far from that, with the exceptions I just said of people I know, but I still think that in general, you need to distinguish not just hierarchy down in the church but also parallel realize there's so many different flavors of christianity roman catholic orthodox lutheran evangelical which you term that's a religion that's not a part of Catholicism. So you have to distinguish, you know, there's Baptists and then, oh, what kind of Baptists? Are you Southern Baptists or this? So you have to be careful. There's a lot of nuance and there's a lot of spectrum. It's not binary either. Oh, I'm pro-science and anti-science. Yeah, and, It's and not I binary think, either. Yeah.
2: I think a lot of the problem is 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 social media and, and aspects of, say, like Twitter, where we're compressed down to 180 characters. We yep. can't be that specific mm-hmm. when we have a propensity for generalization anyway you know, we're, we're, we're compressing our generalizations down. Um, but I I'm, I'm impressed with, with what I'm hearing now, because I did come in here today with some very preconceived ideas. I have some very, very deep questions, which I can't get into, uh, for, for reasons that we've discussed, uh, previously, which I would hope that, at some point in time uh father we would be able to to breach those subjects and and have those discussions um, because it does go into uh the ideas of of uh of doctrine versus evangelical versus military versus popular culture and and things like that and i'm very interested to uh, to be able to explore explore those ideas but um hopefully an- another day what what is a hope or a desire of the Vatican in the operation of the observatory? And and I don't mean in, in grandiose general terms. I mean, like in, in a five-year plan and a 10-year plan, 50 years from now, what is the Vatican projecting that the observatory will be able to provide to the world?
1: Good science. Now, not spectacular front-page science, but there's a lot of sort of building bricks that are always needed. What our telescope here in Arizona can do, it's a very modest size, but it can, you know, keep observing objects So, or doing surveys, which is the fundamental. You find things out by doing surveys and then finding interesting objects within the, those surveys. Or you find things out by staying on an object you know, month by month or whatever it is, year by year, and seeing the changes and trying to understand them. So it's this kind of, uh, you know, sort of fundamental building blocks, of astronomy, that I think our telescope and our presence here, you know, uh, can contribute and has been doing so all along.
2: Uh, a, a personal question for you, Father. I live uh, a few hours uh, west of you. I'm, I'm based in Las Vegas. Um mm. Would it be possible at some point in time, uh, early next year, for me to visit or anybody to visit the observatory? How how would I go about being able to to take a tour or set foot on the observatory and introduce my my eight year old daughter to the idea that religion is not separate from science?
1: Yeah. Um, so when I distinguish a little bit we're all known as the Vatican Observatory but where our telescope is is you know so kind of another yes, matter but yes. yes so it's on Mount Graham which is at an elevation of ten thousand five hundred feet so in winter this is a real problem it's like being in sort of Canada well up in Canada for mm-hmm. the amount of snow so the forest service on you know whose ground is our telescope as well as the other two telescopes there on Mount Graham Uh the Forest Service closes access to visitors in the winter time, which is about November through to the certainly uh, end of April uh, into May. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the summer period, then uh, we welcome visitors through Eastern Arizona College, uh, which runs the um, oh, oh, it's now Discovery Park. That's the okay. name
2: of it, Discovery, Discovery
1: Park. Park. So if you looked up Discovery Park, Eastern Arizona College, you'll see there how visitors are accommodated um, and can get a wonderful tour in the summer periods. We have, The last two seasons, you know, for good pandemic reasons, we haven't been able to have the tours. Hopefully they can begin again, you know, next uh, summer, say late, late May. But it, it, it's lovely to do that. Access, as I say, take is a bit of a trick. The last two miles is, uh, you know, single lane, so that has to, that's why they people have to go up in a, a minivan. But they have wonderful, um, you know, guides there, uh, whom we train, you know, bring up to date each year on what's going on, and they're great enthusiasts.
2: Yeah. How, how much time? How much time do, well, thank you. I I would love to be able to to take a look at it, and and like I said, I I'm raising an eight year old daughter, um, ah. and she is extremely scientifically minded. Uh, her, her mother is, uh, we're, we're divorced. Uh, her mother is, is raising her uh, in a religious aspect. I am re- raising her in a science aspect. And I would love to, for her to set foot somewhere that would allow her to mentally bridge that gap. Because right. I don't think that separately we're, we're imperfect. Your driving um,
0: distance, I think, from the valley. Oh yeah, road. I can it's
2: drive to great. Tucson in just you, a few you, hours. Yeah, That's it's great. just great. Yeah, you and, and my, my my vehicle father go. is is a very capable <laughs> off road vehicle that that again we won't get into, but uh, it it could climb to the top with or without a road. Well, um, the yeah, <laughs> okay, maybe you'd have to do. But
1: the, the thing is the access and and what the Forest Service uh, w- wants to how to do that. So done through Discovery Park.
2: Uh, Discovery yes, Park, uh, fair enough. Yeah.
1: The, how the, how the, much
2: time do you spend at
1: the telescope? Uh, relatively little, you know. It'll be you know four or five nights, you know, maybe three times a year. Um, but you know, one of our number, you know, Father Rich Boyle he's up whenever he can so it's uh, um he, he spends a long time he has colleagues particularly in lithuania and they're doing you know, I'm, half, I'm
0: half lithuanian there are almost no lithuanians
1: say oh. Oh, say so your name oh, yeah. yeah yeah there's like
0: 3 million lithuanians on the planet yeah i'm half lithuanian half polish oh.
1: Well, that's wonderful. What do you but, know? <laughs> super. No, uh, so the wonderful team that he's been working with, and I've done a certain amount. My, his area is, you know, the brightnesses of stars, so photometry. Mine is spectroscopy, so the rainbows of stars. But I have collaborated a bit with them in order to check what they're what they're finding in in through their photometry or brightnesses actually is the same as I can see in the spectra. So I've done a little collaboration with that group and, and uh, So yeah,
2: interesting.
1: It, interesting. It's international, and the, uh, there's actually there's a Polish Jesuit who's part
2: of the team and has been for years.
0: Did you say um, Polish?
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, man, that's great. <laughs> so,
2: so Matthew, when I drive my vehicle over to Tucson, are you hopping in and uh, taking a ride with me?
1: Yeah. Well, well you have to go to uh, Safford. Safford is the place to think of. Which is a couple of hours from Tucson, (laughs) but round Tucson, there of course, one of the wonders round Tucson, of course, are these uh, nighttime uh, visits for um, visits. So, both on Kitt Peak, the National Observatory, and then run on Mount Lemmon, just north of Tucson, run by the University of Arizona, they they, there are visitor nights, and they're just wonderful experiences there. So that would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be lovely to combine that and you know, the visit to Mount Graham. Gosh, and I would, I would love been, to take a look.
0: Yeah, and I've never seen visited the observatory or you, Jeremy. I should combine that into something.
1: Yes, in
2: absolutely. the future,
0: combine that. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And Father, I won't ask if you ever make it out to Vegas, but if you do. Please, please let me know.
0: The city of um, sin. <laughs>
1: I dropped off my sister and husband in Vegas. They were getting a plane over, I think, to San Francisco. So that's about it. We just visited the Grand Canyon. So yeah, I know Vegas.
2: You're um, not missing much.
1: And the nice straight road back, uh, you know, to Tucson.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's it's very straight. <laughs> <laughs> awesome I I have to admit that uh, that my. My questions have have fallen off because of your answers have invalidated a lot of the questions that I was going to ask, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Um <laughs> now you've got to become
0: Catholic again. Now you've got to come back. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I I have a I have a very long road ahead of me before I'll convince I convince you.
0: I'm, I'll work <laughs> on you. It'll be a, your spiritual journey back to the faith.
2: <laughs> what what I can say is I I absolutely love the fact that. A lot of the misconceptions that I held uh, regarding the church and science were dispelled in the last you know, 63 minutes, which I think just having this type of conversation, I, I think, is extremely important. And I do believe that the church has a public relations problem because this message that we're having this discussion today, it reaches virtually no one. And you know, there was even a comment from one of the viewers that that said that the message hadn't gotten to him. And I'm I'm wondering, Father, what what outreach other than ministry? Because I think that when an approach is made to an agnostic or atheist, when when you're wearing the collar, it's somebody immediately crosses their arms and goes into the defense mode. How how can the church reach out to the populace at large with a scientific message and be able to bridge that gap without coming across as, as being pious.
1: Well, obviously one of the ways is we talk about our science, you know, and that I've done many ways. Uh, this time of the year I can I'll happily talk about uh, you know the star of Bethlehem the Christmas star which includes science um, a, as well as uh, you know faith and religion and it's a, a curious uh, mixture and in the end everyone has to make up their own mind on based on the data sure so uh, it, it's it's uh, you know, I enjoy talking about, say, something like that, um, because it does bring in the two aspects. I remember one glorious uh, occasion just north of Tucson to an astronomy club with kind of an extended that had a relationship with a music society there. So we had a wonderful piano recital to the most glorious pictures taken by one of the people who was running the you know, public um, you know tours up on Mount Lemon, and just a fantastic uh, photographer. Uh, so that was a wonderful combination uh, of art there. And then I kind of contributed, you know, thoughts about the Christmas star with some slides and things. Afterwards, it was a, a glorious afternoon.
2: That's that's incredible. And. I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask this, and, and my apologies if this is is a, a, a taboo topic or not. But would there ever be cause for the observatory to make a discovery that the church does not provide to the general public, and it ends up in a in a tome in in the secret library somewhere? Is, is that something that would occur?
1: There's nothing in science that we could be afraid of. This is God's creation. Why, you know, how could we be afraid of that?
2: That is a fantastic answer.
0: Scientists used to be, before they became majority atheists or whatever, scientists used to be inspired by religion, um, looking for, as Father Corbly said, you know, evidence of God's creativity, for oh, example. The Vinci. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, all, uh, how many great scientists and engineers were religious? This whole scientists are mostly atheists thing is mostly a nineteenth, twentieth century yeah. phenomenon. Before that, scientists didn't have a problem discovering germs, discovering stars, galaxies. There wasn't a problem. Think things like you brought up with Galileo earlier were the exception, not the rule were not the general thing and people and scientists themselves were inspired by religion to be like look at the wonders of God creation look at these crazy things that God has created in biology and physics and chemistry and astronomy and geology everywhere
1: genetics Abbot Gregor Mendel exactly who exactly. is actually better known for his meteorology his prediction of local weather than he was for his uh, you know yeah. How the various, uh, how the breeding of things went on. So, founder of,
2: you know, father of genetics. He was Fantastic. a pioneer
0: before DNA, decades before DNA was discovered. Yes. He was a pioneer. Yeah.
2: How does somebody donate to the observatory, to the telescope?
1: Oh, well, lovely. Uh, go
2: to the website,
1: Vatican Observatory, or one word, dot ORG. And it'll tell Vatican you about.
2: Observatory dot yep Let me get this down here so that the uh, the viewers can take a look at it. I believe yeah, well, right there.
1: That's fair. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, there are all kinds of stuff there. There's various blogs and things, and how can you you can sign on to uh, get regular blogs and even participate in monthly full moon conversations.
2: Uh, can people request? uh to use the telescope or have access to the telescope and how does one partner with a research uh, opportunity with the Vatican
1: well it, it would be professional astronomers and we we have have yes. collaborations such as uh, rich and the Lithuanians. The, the other thing is okay. that it's you know part owned by the uh, um University of Arizona so you know fact of the uni- the three university state universities in arizona have uh, access the, the faculty have access to it
2: fantastic father i won't take up any more of your time we've we've gone over the uh, the hour limit here uh if there's anything else that you would like to uh, to to state or express on behalf of the uh, the church the vatican or the observatory separately uh, please feel free to do so
1: Well, just to thank you, Jeremy, for this opportunity, this wonderful conversation with
2: Matthew as well.
1: And just to say, yeah, we're on a journey.
2: We are. We are absolutely on a journey. And uh, hopefully that journey will allow us to have the other conversation at some point in time. Exactly. Father Corbley, Professor Shadagas, thank you both for joining me. This has been an amazing conversation. And uh I hope, Father, you don't mind if I do keep in touch. It'd be
1: lovely. Good
0: to hear me. Look forward to it. It was nice, Father Corbly. It was great to it was nice, great to meet you.
1: And you too.
0: Virtually meet you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's Absolutely. Yeah. And if there's ever any uh any any positive discoveries that uh that the observatory makes, feel free to uh to call me and we can talk about it. Sure. All right. Gentlemen, I thank you for your time. I'm gonna take you out of the uh the show now and uh wish you all the best and Merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas to everyone. Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Merry Christmas. All right, that wraps up episode three of the Osiris Project. Thank you again to Father Corbley and uh Professor Shadagas for their time, expertise, and uh I'm going to be taking a small break between now and the first of the year. So this is the last episode of 2021. Come January 2022, I will be back with more interviews, more live shows, more information, and more science. Anyway, have fun. Enjoy. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. And God bless.